Welcome to Plato as a Hub with your hosts Hugo and Joy. Each month they bring you a vivid personal conversation which aims to enhance your self-cultivation and stimulate your personal growth. Thank you all for listening. Now let's turn to our guests. Yes, welcome everyone at yet another episode of Plato at the Hub. Plato at the Hub is a podcast that focuses on topics related to building to enhance one's self-cultivation and to stimulate your personal growth. We are live every first Friday of the month on hub.bios.nl or listen to it afterwards on platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. By this stage, you may be confused as you would normally hear Hugo throw out the intro. My name is Joy and I will be your host of today. And our producer is Jose. Most importantly, the guest of today's episode will be the one and only Hugo Mozart. Hugo, tell me, how does it feel to be on the other side of the table today? It feels both, uh, thank you for having me, by the way, but it feels both comfortable and tensed. And it always feels comfortable and tense, but now for the exact opposite reasons, because it feels comfortable because I now only have to focus on my answers and not on the intro, not on, on the structure. So that is quite comfortable, but it also feels tense because now I am responsible for giving answers. So that is um, exciting, I, uh, I think, yeah. I uh, I feel your nerves. I'm bloody nervous. I already told you to uh, to do this intro, but I'm you very... You did fine. You did fine. <sighs> but I'm very ha- happy to have you here today. Um, also for the rest, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't have our episode on diversity and inclusion with Eli Zenzagir today. This one will be postponed to a later stage. Um, nevertheless, we have a great show for today on connecting heads, hearts and hands as a driving force of organizational change. Um, we see that agility and resilience are terms that are often used during processes of organizational change. Though when one realizes that an organization is in fact nothing more than a big group of individuals working together, what do the words agility and resilience actually mean? What do they mean for the individuals themselves? And how can one become more agile and resilient within an organization? That is the question today. So Hugo will join me as a guest to look at change from the individual's perspective. He will share his expertise and personal experiences to explore how one can become agile and resilient oneself when dealing with changes and what the importance is of connecting heads, hearts and hands when change is the driving force. The best thing about today's show is that Hugo has absolutely no clue about the questions that I have prepared. None. Nothing, none. Um, So we will test his agility and resilience um, during our conversation. Hugo Mutsars is a lecturer and researcher at Breda University of Applied Sciences. Earlier, he worked for more than 10 years in a large hospital where he took on various roles, such as the management, consultancy and project management. The last three years of his time in the hospital, together with three other colleagues, he was assigned to manage the pre-opening of a new hospital, meaning that more than 5,000 employees were prepared to start working in a new hospital. The challenge of this assignment was that his team had no formal authority. In his private time, Hugo enjoys spending time with his girlfriend and his sons, Adam and Sam. When raising two young boys allows for it, he also likes to run, listen to podcasts and music, to read books and spend time with friends and family. 
So now the people on the show also know who you actually like actually are. Yeah, they did have a clue, right? <laughs> I was just, uh, you know, asking questions and that was it. Yeah. So now you know, yeah. One of the things that they don't know about you is that um, you have a thing for, for titles of, of shows, of articles, whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I remember a conversation we had a while ago and you were obsessed about creating and coming up with a title, though. Yeah. The podcast of today, you you had that title in your mind for quite a while. Mm -hmm. It's uh, connecting uh, heads, hearts and hands. Can you elaborate? What made you select this title? How did you come up with this? Uh, good question. And yes, I, I am always looking for titles that grasp a certain topic. And I think this is uh, for today a good, uh, good title because, um, you know, I, I've had a look at a lot of organizations. Also, of course, the, hos the hospital that I worked in uh, previously. But what I often find in organizations is that they either focus on one of those three. So either they think a lot, they rationalize a lot, they analyze, they can try to control, try to plan, or um, they feel a lot. There's a lot of tension, a lot of conflicts, a lot of emotions going around, or um, um, there's a lot of focus on doing and not really thinking uh, or and, and taking a break and reflecting on what's happening or a combination of one of those three. And I think that the art of, of, of uh, building a an effective organization is is to link those three in order to make a, a perfect mix of those three elements. So that is, I think, the, the ultimate, ultimate art of, of organizations. So looking back at your experience at the hospital, which of those three was most central by that time? Yeah, so um, I think mostly um, uh, heads. So so mostly thinking and rationalizing and analyzing. Um, um, but I have to say now now that I think about it, it is also situational. So in some moments, some some phases in time, um, um, there's a lot of focus on analysis and thinking. Uh, but it could very well be that that some months later is very much feeling and um, and 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 inertia pops up that nothing is being done. Um, but at another moment, we are we are doing a lot of things and not really thinking and feeling. So it's it's also situational in that sense. It's not really fixed or static. It's you know it's moving around all the time. But I have not encountered yet an organization uh, firsthand that really is able to balance those three out of of thinking, feeling, and and acting. So would you say is that like the holy grail, something that we can eventually achieve, or? Yeah, I think as long as, as, as organizations are aware of it, uh, so both leaders, but also people, you know, working in those in those organizations and and being enabled to to reflect on those things. Uh, yes, I believe that is that is possible. But you mentioned the Holy Grail. Yes, the Holy Grail in the sense that it is quite difficult to to find and to 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 maintain. Yeah. yeah. It is something I would like to come back to later in this mm -hmm. episode because I think it's an important part of, especially within organizational change. And um, you already briefly mentioned your experience in the hospital itself. Uh, that was a, a large change project. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you mentioned in the intro was that you had no formal authority yeah. during that uh, phase. Could you elaborate on that? What were your experiences? Well, so maybe good to 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 uh, elaborate a little bit on on the assignment. So, um, you know, a few years before the ho uh, hospital was built, um, you know, physically, um, the board 
the executive board thought it was a good idea besides you know the the bricks and mortar to also set up a program a change team uh, that's that focused on you know the new way of working in that hospital and i think that was a really good decision of the hospital not only to, to focus on the physical environment and the technology within that building but also to set up a plan and to set up a program to focus on the culture the processes taking place in that new environment um but at the same time we worked for the executive board and and we were not placed within the formal hierarchy of the hospital so we were a kind of floating team um, and we would have to start up those dialogues with departments uh, matching departments that will work together in the new hospital uh, but we did not have the formal authority or power or influence to to uh, push through and to to um, make decisions. We really had to create goodwill and momentum to in order to to um, create that new environment with the organization. So, so you talk about goodwill and and talking to people. How did you approach this? What is important um, in yeah. that phase? Yeah, so uh, last time we uh, spoke with Gary, of course, about emotional intelligence, and then I already brought it up. And that I, I talked about a change project, and actually did, that was this change project. And I think the foremost thing is, the most important thing is is time. So this sounds so evident, but taking really taking the time. So we had three years, right? So three years before um, entering that new, um, um, th that new building, um, we had three, three years to, to start up that dialogue. So in the beginning, it's really... You know, getting to know the 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 drawings, the 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 pictures, the the environment, the new the new hospital, getting getting a sense of it, creating that that shared sense, that shared meaning, uh, before you go on to uh, you know redesigning processes and and thinking about staffing and all those things. No, first really elementary. Um, okay, what does it feel like? If you look at this drawing and and you compare it with your current department and and the way patients experience your um, uh, your department, what 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 do you think? So it's really a free conversation in the beginning, but as time proceeds, of course, it becomes more um, specific and more concrete um, in in terms of planning. And and you mention uh, shared meaning and creating a sense of urgency. Um, this reminds me a lot about the the very standard change management model of Cutter. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what is your opinion about such management tools or management models that are often used when organizations mm -hmm. want to start um, implementing yeah. certain changes? Uh, it's quite ambiguous. I'm, I'm, uh, it's an ambiguous opinion. So on the positive side, it helps to put things in perspective and to, to it helps to structure your thinking in terms of, okay, what can we expect in, in this change project? But I also believe that that those models ov might oversimplify uh, the difficulty and the complexity that comes along with such a such a change project, and it is often being perceived as a as a checklist, exactly. right? So we have exactly. to tick off step one, tick off step two. But often it is it is um, you know iterative, so you have to go back and forth and and really sense what sensing what's happening in the organization. And and it's it's also not like that all of the people are in the same stage, I exactly. guess. So uh, it could be yeah. that some are already further in the yeah. process than others. Yeah. And yeah. can you then make it uh, tailor fit to each individual? Or how does that work? Yeah, that is really difficult. So in, 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 the, in so for example, the model of Cotter, I think it's eight steps or something like that. Yeah. I believe in, 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 in this case of uh, the hospital, it was impossible to to you know translate that to an organization of 5000 employees and then say well now we arrived at uh, step 3 right we yeah. have, we can continue 
it doesn't work like that. So I have to be honest, we did not use such a model to go through that change project. It's actually quite, it's also improvisation, really. Uh, you know, really taking the time to to set up those dialogues, to to really carefully listen, to empathize with what professionals are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, having the assumption that they are right about what they are saying. So not... So giving them a voice. Basically. Giving them a, them a voice and trusting them in that mm-hmm. uh, if they say, for example, that they need more staff, then um, initially believe that statement and we'll figure it out later on, right? But it's really about trusting that the professional, um, um, you know, has the heart at the right place and, and, and wants the best for his patients, but also for himself, of course. But So it, it has to do with improvisation, listening, um, believing that the other is probably r- um, right or has the right intentions, mm-hmm. I think that is mostly the the, uh, the trick. But w- what is then the added value of such models? Um, what are they used for? Is it just for students to learn them and to have them in their minds, or? Well, it could be helpful to to when you step into an organization, mm-hmm. uh, which is changing and often organizations are changing i did not come across an organization that is standing still of course so change takes place every day when you step in an organization the model might help to diagnose where the organization is at and then to understand okay what could be an intervention what could be an action to to uh, put things in motion or to uh, uh, to to um, you know, stop for a moment and to reflect. So it, it can help to diagnose where you are st- where you are at as an organization and what to do. Um, so it's kind of a reflective tool rather than a checklist, I would say. So, but then looking back at the episode of last time, also with Kiri, it helps to be high in emotional intelligence to understand the other's perspective. Where are they currently in the process, and then trying to. Um, change your behavior your your uh, attitude towards that person in such a way that it helps them to go to the next stage yeah because i also believe and i think it was you who mentioned uh, the other side also feels that you are uh, you know um, you are willing to understand them and you are empathetic with what they are saying so um, it works both ways if you have that kind of emotional intelligence um, with you but how does it work with 5,000 employees it's not like a a group change project with 15 people can you yeah so we did not talk to every uh, employee so it's it's uh, so we did use the formal hierarchy to to set up those those dialogues and every department had their own uh, project group to work on that change and that was actually the you know the channel to 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 you know communicate to the rest of the the employees so Yes, you you map out the, the the key players in the organization, and uh, and occasionally you 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 well you set up a a meeting with a nurse or, or a doctor that has an idea or has a concern, and that is also improvisation, of course. But we did not talk to every employee, but we use the formal hierarchy to 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 structure those conversations. But then you need those people on board. You yeah, need yeah, those yeah. people to yeah. point their noses in the same direction as yeah. you guys have and, and to to maybe have the same tactics or approach as you guys have. Yeah, exactly. And and um again, time helps to to um so if you have too little time it feels like a rush and it feels like you are forcing things upon uh people in the organization and because we had that time it did not feel like forcing them to do something now we had a dialogue and they they were owner 
of their own change uh, process within that department or maybe uh, interdepartmental. But um, yeah, so, and also I was thinking of the, of the fact that, you know, each department had its own project group. So what we also tried to do was besides the formal hierarchy, also look at key players, informal, you know, informal leaders that, that could play a role in, in, in uh, adapting to that, uh, that, that new how, change. How do you find them? Um, using, using um, um, so knowing the organization, first of all, so I, I, you know, I worked there already for, for nine years or so. So I, I really knew the organization just as my superior who, who you know, um, managed our uh, floating team, if you like. So we really knew the organization uh, quite well. Um, Sorry to un interrupt you there, because um, especially because we look at change from the individual level in this episode. How do you like, even though it's it's nine or ten years that you've worked there, um, how do you get to know an organization? I mean, especially mm -hmm. in a hospital. I remember when I was working as a yeah, nutrition assistant. Um, that, that it was very difficult for me to get into contact with people of other layers so mm -hmm. to say so so during lunch i was always sitting with the nutrition assistants yeah the doctors were often not even looking at me yeah, yeah, yeah. so so how do you get to know an organization that is so hierarchical yeah, always yeah, yeah. difficult word yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um it's a good question um i don't have an answer straight away honestly so i believe it has to do with um sometimes just reaching out anyway so um in my case i uh, you know i started i started out when i was 21 or something like that in in uh, the hospital and i sometimes just forced myself to contact uh, the executive board to to talk about something or to um or, or or reached out to doctors to to address something so creating goodwill in creating goodwill but i think in, in my case, so I can only talk from my own experience, what helps is if you have a genuine interest in, in operations in, in, in healthcare, in this yeah. case. That really helps because they feel that, that you really um, value what's happening and that you are concerned about something. I, I think that is, that is uh, vital, that is, that is crucial to, to get that, uh, that connection. To, to it, it now reminds me a bit of the... There's this new series on Netflix, New Amsterdam. New Amsterdam. Yeah, and, and this is maybe exactly what this guy is also doing in the beginning. It's not about operational stuff. It's about genuine interest in what are you guys encountering? What are the problems that you yeah. face? Really trying to get to understand yeah. their procedures. Yeah. yeah. And and then you see that it's really easy because often there is this image of doctors that they are not approachable, not accessible. And I understand that. But if you really... You know how to touch them with their, you know, their the thing that they are doing have been doing for so long, and you they feel that you are really interested, then you easily get that connection. Yeah. So that that is that is one thing, but another thing is also luck, um, in the sense that uh, along the way, after a few years, I I um, I got a manager who really uh, just saw opportunities for me, saw potential in me, and and he brought me along to project groups and to the executive board to talk about uh, operations. And um, so it's also some sort of luck you sometimes need that somebody sees potential in you and and, and is, is, you know, um, okay to bring you along to certain meetings and, and then you get a, you know, a stage to, to, to talk and to listen and to learn, you know, that, so it's not only my um, uh, uh, ability or capability, mm -hmm. it's also luck that somebody sees potential in you. Yeah. 
getting getting back to the to the part on organizational change um actually today i've read a very interesting thesis on organizational change from one of our students mm -hmm. and she is looking at the uh, the importance of engagement within organizational change and then engagement is looked at from multiple levels so so also the cultural engagement so how much the culture affects the engagement of the employees throughout change um, but also the, the the personal engagement of employees themselves. What is your view on this? To what extent or how did you experience the engagement of the different employees um, during the change process you guided? Yeah, that's it varies a lot. So it, it, I'm also I'm always quite hesitant to talk about culture because especially in, in large organizations, you've got different kinds of cultures, you know, so. What do you uh, mean with that? So large organizations you know with many departments they have their own cultures they sometimes don't even deal with a certain com a certain department or or a management level or so they over time they have developed their own culture their way of working and, and way of, of dealing with each other and uh, and also the way i perceive a culture is always subjective so it's difficult to grasp what the exact culture is right so that that is i'm always a bit hesitant to talk about about cultures and then, and then about engagement in general uh, how do you define engagement and how did you experience this during the change process um could you rephrase that because it's quite quite a maybe first question what is engagement during change what does that mean yeah, the willingness to to contribute and to to learn together and to to um, really that's basically that. So th the willingness and and the eagerness and and being activated, you know, to contribute to to uh, a better result. And how did you experience that with the employees in I, the hospital? I, uh, overall, so in on average, really high engagement. Yeah. Really high engagement. Can you yeah. give an example? Um, the willingness of of nursing staff who. You know, uh, we've all read the newspapers, but they are under high pressure also before COVID. Um, so high pressure, working a lot. The willingness to um, to work an, uh, after their shifts on this project, working weekends on this project, uh, this project. Um, so that willingness to to go beyond what is being asked of you and and. Yeah, th mostly that. It, it reminds me about um, the concept of organizational citizenship behavior. So mm -hmm. wanting to go that extra mile for the, for exactly. the organization. Um, I never know what it is. What makes people do that? If they feel that what they are doing actually contributes to the end result. So if they feel that they actually add, add something to the end result, um, and that must be genuine. So it shouldn't be a trick. Now, really, if I work on this plan, I can have an impact on what we do later on in, 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 um, in the new situation. Uh, and that was really the case. That was the case. So if, if nurses, and, and we would help them with that, so work out plans, for example, to set up new processes, we would uh, assist them in that. Um, if they would feel that that mattered, uh, bottom line, then you get things going. Yeah. Yeah, actually, this is also what we uh, say in, in, in the intro of the podcast, right? That um, we have to realize that an organization is just a group of people grouped yeah. together, nothing more than that. Yeah. And 
But then I'm always wondering because we, when you read in books and articles, we often see the importance of management and leadership within organizational change. And as an individual, as just a puppet within that big group, it sometimes may feel like you um, you don't contribute that much to the overarching mm-hmm. change that you want to to start. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Like, what is the um, um, uh, individual's effect in an organizational change process, and how can we take them along in this? It's it's huge. So this, what you just mentioned, that is the traditional um, definition of power. You know, so power is is um, stems from uh, an hierarchy, um, but power is fluid. Power is is dynamic in the sense that power can also come from bottom up uh, and not only from authority that is given to you from from hierarchy so if you have a second year old son which i have um you know that power can also come from bottom up what do you mean with that well that that adam in this case can can influence what's happening in in our living room <laughs> <laughs> and and I have the authority, but he's the CEO me, of Mutsas. Well, sit, uh, occasionally, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. We sometimes call him Prince Adam the <laughs> first. Um, so in this case, in 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 our own family, uh, we have the authority. That's the hierarchy, right? So mm-hmm. we have the authority, but he can also have power. He can also establish power and and influence things. And that is actually the same in organizations. So yes, the CEO has has the the formal power and the management levels as well. But groups of individuals can also also mobilize themselves. And uh, when they go on a strike or when they refuse to to, uh, work overtime, then actually the CEO has a problem. So that is the interesting thing about power that's, it is not only as as we thought traditionally. It's not only the hierarchy. So I came across I do not know the name anymore, but I came across um, um, a study that asked one question in organizations uh, to every individual: um, to which direct colleague do you go to when a new idea or plan is being presented? Under the assumption, of course, that you are likely going to copy that that uh, opinion and their thoughts um, and then they found that 70% of the organization points at 5% of the organization so and who are these people yeah who are these people exactly and that this is besides this is besides uh, formal hierarchy this mm-hmm. is dynamic this is a social social structure that is i think changing also over time so it's not it's not fixed but this is a social uh, dynamics of an organization. So we, th- those five percent, if we know who they are, okay. So, so that is so, a gold. So, that is a gold mine. You know. Now you work here at Breda University of Applied Sciences. Uh, if I were to ask you that question, who would you go to? And maybe I would go to you. Me? Yeah, yeah. Me? Why? Why? What makes you go to me? Um, well, because I, I I value very much as a as a colleague. Uh, I think that you. Um, have fresh ideas about education. Um, um, yeah, I value you as a as a as a human being also. So that I think I think I, I turn to you. But what makes you then not turn first to the management team, for example, or to higher formal authorities? Yeah, because. Um, 
because I believe that human beings go to the persons, to other human beings with whom they can identify themselves. So do you believe Rather than, than going to your superior first, you go to that particular person that you can identify yourself with. So do you rather believe in self-steering teams than formal authorities or? Well, uh, yeah, well, I, I could not give one answer to that, but I, I, I am a big supporter of, um, um, of giving more authority, more mandate, more freedom and autonomy to, to teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I, I, I believe there's also a lot of downsides to, to self-steering teams, but I have a lot of trust. What in kind of downsides? Well, um, do self-steering groups have the ability to to rise above the process and to steer it into a better direction? Or are self-steering teams especially good at uh, managing operations from day to day? Mm -hmm. That is that is something I I'm curious about. I don't know the answer. I did not look into research or anything, but. Uh, um, I believe you have to have a, a, some someone who keeps an overview also not only in one team but also the interaction and the interrelations between other teams and other departments to mm -hmm. to to understand if things are still still consistent and I don't know if self-steering teams are really uh, capable of doing that. A self-steering team always reminds me of just a group of or a bunch of friends who wants to throw a party and, and <laughs> everyone is... Sounds just fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. Yeah. Everyone is just trying to take on a certain role in this team and then they it just organically develops. So still someone is going to be the leader. Um and and everyone takes on the role that fits them best, I guess. Um but then within organizations you see that some employees are hesitant in taking on those roles and, and, and actually initiating the first steps. Yeah. Um, what makes them so hesitant? What what is the barrier in actually yeah. just going for it and just trying to to work yeah. towards change? Well, I believe it has to do with um, um, a sort of a paradox or dilemma. I don't know what exactly it is, but uh, between standing out and fitting in, and we talked about this with in your uh, episode, that human beings want to belong. They want to belong to a group and to to be able to identify themselves with with a group, but they also want to stand out. They want to be seen, you know. So, um, um, but I think you know, at the end of the day, they want to belong, and it takes courage to to rise above a group of of like-minded people to rise above a group and say, "I'm going to lead you," you know, and uh, to initiate change, and to initiate and to initiate change, and it makes it easier if a formal um, you know, a formal official, formal uh, person says, I grant you the authority to lead this team. It makes it easier, somewhat easier. You know, you get you get this mandate and yeah. to do it spontaneously uh, yourself, to take that initiative, that, that takes courage to do that. And I would definitely urge people to do that more often. I also believe it has to do with culture, with Dutch culture maybe also. What do you mean with that? Now, we have this... Um, um, I don't know, egalitarian. So, mm -hmm. so really focusing on. I don't know if this is an English word. I just made it up, maybe. But uh, uh, so really, our our culture is really focusing on on equality, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, compromises, working together in big groups, flat structures. That that is Dutch. 
so then it takes even more courage to to rise above a group and 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 say, well, I'm going to lead this this bunch to to a better future. And doesn't it also just depend on the size of the organization and the different layers in there and the um, because if you have like small startup companies, it's easier to yeah. take that step rather than having this big organization yeah, such I as the so hospital. Too. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so if you have a company of 10 employees, for example, it makes it easier than 5,000 employees, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because also then then there's only one team. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, I th- I believe that makes it easier. So there are no interrelations with, with other departments and maybe politics, uh, less politics exactly. maybe. Yeah. Now you've been working here at uh, Breda University of Applied Sciences for about a year, I guess. Um, Yeah, something like that. More or less. A bit more. I think we were friends for a year on LinkedIn. Yeah. (laughs) Celebrations. Memorable moments. Memorable moments. (laughs) Um, One of your key visions in, in apparently in life and in titles is connecting heads, hearts and hands. Mm -hmm. How do you currently execute this in your role as a lecturer? Well, then I first think about my interaction with students. Um, so what I do there is what I try to do, also what I do in my private life, is to to be myself. And that sounds so cliche. Cheesy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> cheesy, I want to cheesy, say, but... cheesy, cliche, whatever, <laughs> cliche, whatever. No, but um, um, so I I try to dare to be myself also with my vulnerabilities and to, to, to let them know if, if I feel insecure about a topic or whatever. So can you give an example of that? Like, how do you do that? Um, yeah, if, if I don't know anything about or or too little about a topic, then, then I'm not going to talk about it. I'm, I'm, I'm just being honest about it and, and, or, or if I'm nervous about, about, uh, something. So I, I thought of a setup for a session with students. Uh, I can, I can be quite nervous about it. I, I don't know. It's sort of a tension that I, that I feel that I don't feel hesitant to, to, to share that. And, and, um, so there I, what I try to do is to, of course, think because you have to think the structure out and to think about what's, be, what's going on, but also feel what, what am I feeling and what is the group maybe feeling and should I uh, adjust my, my structure in order to tailor more to their needs because, because of what I felt uh, is happening in the group and then ultimately doing things. So not only thinking and feeling about stuff, but also experimenting mm-hmm. So that is what I hate most in in organizations is the talking about things and not doing it. Not doing it. It reminds me of I think one of the first conversations we had and about setting up this podcast, and you came to me and you just said, "Okay, let's just do it. Let's let's just do it. Yeah, try it. Let's try it and let's learn from there." And 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 by uh, doing so, you create change, I guess, or at least yeah, you try exactly. it out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. Now, often, often, and we'll come back to that at the end uh, when we talk about the song that I uh, have chosen. Um, often, the result is much better um, when you do it. But what happens when you fail? Then you learn. And then so, you of course, you have to be careful in in which context you can do that. Of course, uh, doing a surgery, you don't have to. You c- you cannot improvise. So, you have to stick <laughs> to procedures to to keep it safe, right? So, let me be clear. I'm not, I'm not urging anybody to to start improvising uh, uh, all the way. But in in many occasions, many situations in organizations, we can improvise. Not nobody will die. Um, um, so. Um, 
Looking even at the, 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 the changing working procedure during COVID. Yeah. Everyone had to try and to yeah, change to and adjust. And trial and error, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then we and then we did it. So we yeah. th then we had that incentive or that urge to, to change and then we did it. But before that, we didn't do it. But what makes people so scared of trying it out and then... Yeah, well, I think Kiri mentioned something that um, um, it, it exactly taps into that feeling of anxiety of, of, of and then they and then you freeze often. And you and if you freeze, then you st then you hold on to what you did, what you've always done. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, it reminds me of the word that um, that I mentioned to to our students that fail is first attempt in learning yeah that's the abbreviation and that we need to learn in order to change one of the things that i'm like every day during teaching i'm, I'm thinking about and ruminating about is that um changing students like we've been raising students and kids in such a way that they're a little bit laid back and trying to get the answers from us rather than having a proactive mm -hmm approach and trying to go out there themselves and looking for the answers and not just taking stuff for granted and this is one of the behaviors that i constantly try to mm -hmm. trigger and change um coming from health sciences myself i think that uh, changing behavior is one of the most difficult things to uh, mm -hmm. to do um we talked about changing organizations just before how can you use your experience uh, in an organization itself to change behavior on an individual level like what what kind of advice would you give me uh first understand and this is actually uh, i'm a big fan of and you you as well uh, of uh, esther Pirel. Mm -hmm. um first understand that that we are that we have created these patterns um in w and, and these are actually cycles so the way you behave and the way you interact with me also has to do with how i behave so that is you know a two-way stream and and we we affect each other's behaviors and also with your students you are actually also influencing their behavior because of your behavior by your behavior so i think first acknowledging that fact that that it works like that instead of saying well the students are passive uh now what am i or what is our group of teachers doing mm -hmm. day in day out because it has to do with the long run and not only today or this lesson no what are we doing in the long what have we been doing uh, the, the the past years um that actually created this cycle of yeah. uh being passive or being laid back because i i, be I believe that that acknowledgement it starts there to to change uh, uh behavior of yourself and, and and of the students so change starts with oneself yeah and again that's might, might sound a little bit cheesy maybe but i really i really it is like that mm -hmm. and and um i often use the mo metaphor uh, of um you know in life when we when we live our lives we make we make pictures constantly we make pictures as if we were a photographer right and and we select data from those pictures and we make 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 sense out of it and and based on on, on that conclusion we behave and we think and we behave but the pitfall of that is that we are not on that picture the photographer is behind mm -hmm. the camera but actually we are influencing the dynamics and the cycles and the patterns uh between people um um so that's that is the pitfall of being a human being that's um 
you cannot see yourself interact you really have to be aware of that what am i doing that might most likely is going to influence you so what we then do is we start to accuse one another we okay. say well you need to change you need to become more active you know what do do what did i do in the past that actually made you more passive so to change the dynamic and to change the behavior of the other person one needs to first look at yeah oneself and it it, it all comes back to also the last episode again on emotional intelligence to first know thyself it almost sounds like shakespeare but um first know oneself to understand the other exactly yeah yeah so for example an intimate relationship i use this in class as well an intimate relationship between uh of a boy and a girlfriend the girlfriend wants um the girlfriend wants her boyfriend to to open up and to speak up about his thoughts and feelings and then she thinks well i'm going to give the good example how to do that and then she talks about her thoughts and feelings without a breathing space and then what that does with the boyfriend is well obviously there's no space or there's no space for me to talk about my feelings so i'm just going to listen passively and and wait and then she thinks well he's so passive and he's not opening up about his thoughts and feelings so i'll show the good example to how to do that and then those cycles can go on for ages in relationships but also those relationships also exist in organizations and we start to accuse the other but actually the real change starts with oneself and and, and in that sense if you engage in a conversation in an organization it's about the leader for example being vulnerable and sharing thoughts and experiences but at the same time genuinely listening to the person that they're talking to and and allowing them to open up about their experiences as well yeah an example in an organization is and this this is actually you you can translate it from an intimate relationship to organization you could say i've been a manager myself you know what you would, would want to have is an is a team that is active and things along with you and comes up with ideas uh, but often that does not happen so what you then think as a manager is um when nothing happens happens i'm going to give them instructions what to do so that's what you start doing based on your on your conclusion right so that's what you start doing and then the team is like okay he's giving us instructions i'm just going to lay back and, and wait for the instructions and i'm going to execute it and then you feel like man, I really have to do it myself all the time. Okay. I'm, I'm waiting for those IDs. <laughs> yeah. And then again, you start uh, giving instructions yeah. and so on and so forth. And that, that can go on for ages yeah. if we're not aware of it. It reminds me of um, a friend of mine once said, and I think in Dutch it sounds better, but um, you can bring a horse to the water, but then it doesn't start to drink. So you can give the instructions to yeah. the people, but it doesn't mean that they know what to do with it by that time. Yeah, so. and, and you you actually maintain that dysfunctional pattern uh, yourself. Yeah. So And also the thing is, there is no start or end in that cycle. So you cannot really pinpoint where it started. It is a cycle, so it, it, it goes on for on uh, forever. If but how do you un- in, uh, interrupt that cycle? Doing things, mm-hmm. experimenting. Doing new st- new things as a manager or as a team or as an organization, you can apply it to to different you know layers. Mm. But let's take it to the individual. Doing things, not only thinking about it or uh, frust- being frustrated, no, doing things, doing different things, and then seeing what happens in the per- pattern and in the dynamics and and see if it worked or not. So connecting hearts, hands. Exactly. Exactly. Heads. 
Yeah. Um, and often we think about it, we ruminate about it, we worry about it. We know what we should do. We should let it go. Let the team do something. Even the first attempt is not the way you would have done it, but just let it, let them do it and then so see what, what happens. What is your advice there to managers there that, that are in such a situation? First, let go and don't ask too much of yourself and the team. So there in, in the first attempt is more about the fact that they initiated something and, and encourage them for that rather than the actual output. Mm-hmm. And often that's where it goes wrong because we have so high expectations of of the output that um, of the end result that we start you know taking control again because we thought well we they could have done better you know mm-hmm. uh, wasn't that wasn't that good looking at the research on perfectionism this actually relates a lot to to having high expectations of oneself because you want to yep. take it on yourself but you have also it's called other oriented perfectionism so you also have high expectations of the other people in your yep. team and you should actually let go of all of these expectations in order to yep. let the change flow basically Ex- exactly and and here we come back to uh, a point i also stressed uh, previously it has to do with time and efficiency we have this fetish for efficiency so i think uh, and this this stems from you know the industri- industrial mindset that we have to be efficient everything has to be done as as quickly as possible right but then there's no room for improvisation and room for error and 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 room for experiments um and so that is that is my critique towards uh, efficiency mm-hmm. So what happens if you're in an organization where they don't allow you to take that time for the change or to have the money to take more time for for creating urgency and so on? Yeah, then again, uh, you have the responsibility to to change that pattern mm-hmm. or responsibility. You have the opportunity rather to to change that dynamics, to to do something with that. Either you accept it or you start up a dialogue with uh, you know, the, the key players that, that have an influence, have an impact on, on uh, that culture. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's a pattern that exists. And also, um, so th- that's why I always, I hate it when, when people say, well, the management, uh, so I heard that in the previous organizations I worked in, the management should do something about it. Yeah, I understand, but again, um, it is also a pattern. So you are there as well. You are involved as well. You have also um, your involvement and your input on, on what's happening or what's not happening. Mm-hmm. So what can you do yourself to to influence that, uh, that, that, that dysfunctional, in your opinion, that yeah. dysfunctional pattern? You can point the finger, but there's three pointing back. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. We are really uh, good with the cliches today. I know. I love using <laughs> metaphors. <laughs> it's the story of my life. Um, I think yeah, we can make an Excel sheet with all the metaphors we Let's use today. Um, one of the I want to take it back to an individual level. One of the your major life cycle changes was the birth of your first son, mm-hmm. uh, Adam. Um, changing life experiences also is some kind of change actually yeah um how do you experience this how do you experience changing circumstances and how do you deal with it on a daily basis yeah a good question uh uh quite ambiguous actually i think it was um a dutch comedian theo Maassen, who said in an interview i'm a person 
who needs new stimuli. But also I'm a person that if he gets too much stimuli, he gets stressed. I should, I could have written this. <laughs> so that is that is who I am. So I get bored easily, but I also get, uh, um, you know, um, I don't know the, the English word, but I get too much stimuli, which makes me stressed and anxious. <laughs> could yeah. make me stressed and anxious. So how can you deal with that at that moment? In the case of the birth of uh, our first son. For example, or in general? Uh, accepting it, first of all. So this is this is apparently something you have to go go through and, and um, uh, nothing lasts forever. I think it was also something you mentioned in the episode with uh, Wouter. Uh, this too shall pass, right? So, um, and, and that's, life cannot always be fun and and also has new opportunities uh, so it changes not only about bad things uh, happening it also entails opportunities so change is not necessarily scary but it can be seen as an opportunity of growth yeah but i think in in that is a convenient truth in hindsight mm-hmm. so i think in the moment uh, it it is scary and it is overwhel- it could be overwhelming and and only in hindsight you see that you have grown as a person mm-hmm. at least that's my experience so 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 maybe as a, a final question or a thought um when someone is about to encounter a big change in their lives uh, that is coming up to them what would you say is your main advice to this person how can they um conquer this change um Well, first of all, uh, I would say um, acknowledge the fact that life cannot always be fun, um, but a change can also be uh, positive. So, so first, uh, this is something you apparently have to go through. So, um, and I also liked your remark, or actually it was Wouter's remark, remark um, this too shall pass, right? So you have to go through that and see it as an opportunity to grow and to learn um, and into into a more mature more effective person that I think that is, you know, the lesson, but also, um, so that is a change that, that is being forced upon you, but also we've got changes that you can initiate yourself because you know, you have to, you know, you have to stop smoking. You know, you have to, you want to change, uh, switch jobs. That is something that is not, uh, being forced upon you. You have to do it yourself. And then I would say, um, just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Just do it and um, learn along the le- along the way. Yeah. So it comes back down to the title of the episode. So yeah. knowing it, your head, um, heart feeling inside that this is the right part to go and, and just do doing it. it. Then do yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. All right. Hugo, I was super happy to have you as a guest today on the show, on our show. Um, every week, every week, every month, I'm happy that we're um, that we started this this podcast and that we decided to make this change in our um, educational life to take this on as well. You have selected a song for um, yeah to close off the episode. Uh, which one did you select, and why did you select that epi- uh, that uh, particular song? So. Um I also uh, wrote a, uh, an article on our website, platoatthehub.com, about Miles Davis. And Miles Davis is um, a jazz, was a jazz uh, player. Um, and um, he was re- very much into, into improvisation. And actually in the 50s, in um, 
59, I think it was, he made the album Kind of Blue. And um, that that album was mostly improvisation. So the band players and, and Miles Davis himself, they only had some sketchy notes, but all the rest of it was improvisation. So they relied on each other. They relied on their expertise and they relied on the moment and they just did it. And something beautiful came out of it because it still is a masterpiece. Uh, so the next time you listen to that that album, I would definitely that record, I would definitely, you know, uh, digest that fact that it's mostly improvisation that you hear. But then I went dived into that, and then I noticed that actually he did that earlier on. So there is this French movie called uh, L'Ascenseur pour les Chafaux. Um and now I forgot the English. Um, uh, the English uh, translation, but it sounds nice, right? Nice, right? Sounds fancy. <laughs> French movie. And what he did was he stood in the movie theater. It was uh, 57 and the record came out in 58. And he stood in the uh, movie theater and he looked at the movie. No sound, just uh, the movie, just uh, the images. And then he played and he recorded the soundtrack of that movie along the way improvising so he did that er before kind of blue and um so i chose the song generique from uh, la censure pour les chafaux um and i urge the listeners to really listen to this song and then really acknowledge the fact that this is just improvisation and i get goosebumps right away Th this is something he just came up with on that particular moment great Thank you a lot, Hugo. Thank you, Jose, for producing today. Um, everyone that already listened, thank you for being there. Next episode, we're gonna um, find out, you can find out later which uh, person is going to be on this episode on www.playdoatthehub.com. For now, thank you all for listening. Have a great evening and goodbye.